0: For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is A Testimony of Love testimony of love. This is Romans chapter nine, verses one through five. So we've come now to a new chapter in this book. This is a, just a fantastic uh, book in the Bible, Uh, a tremendous book in the Bible. And in the first eight chapters of this book, uh, Paul has essentially introduced to us the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that gospel, I want you to think with me about Paul's train of thought, having introduced the gospel and now working from that exposition of the gospel in the first eight chapters to uh, a new subject, if you will, a related subject in chapters nine through 11. In the first eight chapters, Paul has introduced to us the gospel. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. Jew or Gentile, all have turned aside. Do you see the context of that statement? Jew or Gentile, all have turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There are none who do good, no, not one. Jew and Gentile alike are all, all of them are confined under sin. And whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, not that they may attain to a righteousness or a right standing with God through their good works, but rather the law says it so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. For by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now it's into this dark, into this desperate context that God reveals the light of the gospel. Think with me. The righteousness of God himself, a righteousness apart from the law, the righteousness of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is revealed. Namely, that righteousness of God given as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. That righteousness given as a gift to all who believe, Jew and Gentile alike. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then all who would be justified, Jew or Gentile alike, all are justified freely by the grace of God through the redemptive work of his Son, whom God sent forth as a propitiatory or wrath-satisfying sacrifice by his shed blood, so that all who would turn from their sin and entrust themselves to Jesus Christ in faith would be saved. Whoever then, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Therefore, Paul says, we conclude that a man is justified then by faith entirely apart from works or deeds of the law. And there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and justify the uncircumcised through faith. The circumcised or justified through faith, those are the elect Jews. The uncircumcised or justified through faith, those are the elect Gentiles. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, the first witness that Paul calls to the stand In defense of his premise, in chapter 4, is the great patriarch himself, Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jews, has nothing to boast about. Not anything that he can boast in. Abraham was justified freely by God on the basis of an imputed righteousness. A righteousness that was given to Abraham as a gift of God through the means of Abraham's works, No, through the means of Abraham's faith, not in any way connected to Abraham's works. The promise of an eternal inheritance, the promise that Abraham would inherit the world, that promise God made to Abraham and to his seed was not given through the works of the law. It was given on the basis of a righteousness that would be put to Abraham's account, credited to Abraham's account through the means of Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul asks then in chapter four, verse nine, is that blessedness, is that promise, that gift of God's grace, is that given to the circumcised only? In other words, is it given to the Jew only? Or is that blessedness, that grace and mercy, that compassion, that goodness, is that blessedness of justification, that blessed righteousness given to the uncircumcised as well, to the Gentile also? Well, Paul brings up the point. Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. And that justification by faith before Abraham's circumcision was for the, pro- for the purpose of proving that the righteousness of Jesus Christ would be given to any and all who believe. Jew or Gentile, anyone who would believe like Abraham believed. And Abraham becomes the father, not only of the Jews, not only of the circumcision, but the father to all those who walk in the same faith that Abraham walked, Jew and Gentile alike. There is a universal scope to the free offer of the gospel. And the promise that God made to Abraham and to his descendants of an eternal inheritance would not be given through the works of the law. That promise would rather be given to all those through the righteousness of faith. And God determined in his plans and purposes to redeem or call out a people for his name, God determined that that promise would be given through faith so that our salvation would be entirely based upon his grace And not upon any works of our own, so that that promise of an eternal inheritance would be sure and certain to all the seed of Abraham, whose seed you are through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul then spent the next four chapters, five, six, seven, and eight, proving that premise proving that the one who has been justified through the means of faith alone in Christ alone may be sure that he will inherit the promise. The one who has turned from faith, turned from sin to faith in Jesus Christ, the one who has entrusted himself in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ may be certain that he has salvation in Christ. He may be sure of it. As we've seen through our study of chapter eight, that assurance not founded upon ourselves, that assurance is not to be found in our own works, in our own ability to persevere, in our own ability to remain steadfast. Our That assurance not even based upon our own ability to believe. That assurance is founded upon the eternal, electing, and immutable love of God for those he has determined to call to himself and save and conform into the image of his only begotten son. Our security rests in our surety. Our security rests in the finish and sufficient work of Jesus Christ as our substitute. And that work is applied by the spirit of God who has been given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. Therefore, in this great exposition of the gospel from Paul in his letter to the church at Rome, therefore, having been chosen by God in eternity and having been united to Jesus Christ in time through faith, there is nothing, that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In chapter nine, Paul now shifts to a different, but it's a related concern. As Paul is going to resolve that concern uh, in the section of this letter that now lies before us, it's a section that begins here in chapter nine and runs to the end of chapter 11. Paul's concern is essentially this. If the gospel is the free and gracious justification of an undeserving sinner through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law, and if that gospel means the salvation of Gentiles through that same means, then what has become of physical and ethnic Israel? What has become of unbelieving, and apostate descendants, physical descendants of Abraham. Most importantly, most importantly, what has become of the promises of God made to Abraham and his seed? What has become of that promise? Now, Paul, in this, in thinking through this subject, Paul is answering objections for us. If the promise that God made to Abraham, if that promise is fulfilled on the basis of a spiritual relationship, rather than on the basis of a physical or an ethnic relationship, then hasn't God actually, in fact, abandoned the people of the covenant? Hasn't God then actually broken his promise to Abraham? Well, you can imagine how answering that objection, those objections would certainly be important to Paul's Jewish audience, but would also be very important to Paul's Gentile audience as well. Paul has just made the case, think with me now, Paul has just made the case that the assurance of the believer is rooted and grounded exclusively in the sovereign work of our God and in his power and in his faithfulness to fulfill all that he has decreed. That's where our assurance lies. And if God has abandoned the people of the covenant for their unbelief, if God has abandoned the people of the covenant because of their apostasy, then what assurances can we really have? What assurance can we really have that he won't abandon his purposes for us as well? Paul, you've said that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But what of God's professed love for Israel? What of all the promises that God has made to Israel? How are we to understand that? Ultimately, ultimately, how is it that we can trust God's promises to us then? That's the subject that Paul's undertaking now in Romans chapter nine through Romans chapter 11. 9, chapter chapter 9, verse 6, is a reference to that concern. Has the word of God actually failed? Has it failed? Has it become of no effect? And it's in the astounding, astounding theology of the next three chapters that Paul is going to answer those objections. He's going to vindicate the word of God. He will vindicate God's covenant faithfulness to the nation of Israel He is going to rejoice and he's going to cause us to rejoice in the promises of God to true Israel, the children of the promise. And he is going to marvel as we are going to marvel at the glorious design of God for the salvation of his people, leading us all to worship God for his infinite wisdom at the very end of the section, chapter 11 and to glory, to boast in the faithfulness of God in his judgments, in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever, amen. Brothers and sisters, that's where theology lands lands us. That's where theology directs us. It directs us to glory and into to revel in the majesty, the magnificence of our living God. It leads us to worship, amen? This is not an academic exercise. This is informing our understanding of who God is and what God has done. And it should cause us to worship and to praise our God. And Paul is going to lead us in worship through the theology of these chapters together. Now, as we begin our consideration of this section, we begin in chapter nine, verse one, where in, at the outset, Paul is wearing his heart on his sleeve, so to speak. And this is a subject that is obviously hit close to home. Verse one, I tell you the truth in Christ. Paul says, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema, for the sake of, accursed from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul's concern in this section of the letter wasn't merely to answer a Jewish objection. Right? Paul's concern is not merely to win an argument. Paul's concern is that his countrymen, according to the flesh... Ethnic Jews, his concern is that they would be saved. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He wants his Jewish country to be converted. Chapter 11, verse 13, Paul says, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry so that if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Paul wants to see the Jewish people saved. This isn't an academic exercise. Do you see? Paul would have his Jewish countrymen acknowledge the judgment of God concerning them. They would acknowledge Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah and that they would embrace him in faith, turn from their sin, trusting God alone for salvation and they would be eternally saved. Paul wants them converted. Paul's not trying to win an argument. Paul is trying to win their soul. Do you see? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14, Paul says their minds are blinded Their eyes have been veiled. A veil lies over the eyes of the Jewish people in the preaching of the gospel, in their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, and that veil is only removed in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's why Paul preaches Christ and him crucified, determined to know nothing among them but Christ and him crucified. You can hear in this the anguish of Paul's heart, right? These words are emotive. There's intense emotion behind Paul's words. There's intense emotion behind this theology. This theology is to convince them that God is faithful to his covenant promises, that the Jewish people might be saved, that the Gentiles would be included, that the Gentiles would be saved. And I'm sure uh, that all of us, to one degree or another, can relate to Paul's anguish, right? You have a loved one you've preached the gospel to. You have a loved one that you long Long for God to save them, right? A loving mother knows what Paul's dealing with with respect to their lost child. A godly father knows what Paul is going through with respect to a lost son. The anguish of heart that Paul feels, that longing, that ache in your heart for God to save them, for God to change their heart, right? Paul's anguish of heart is for his countrymen. And Paul is going to plead with them now in this text to give him a hearing. It, would be an understatement. it wouldn't be an understatement. It wouldn't be an understatement to say that those to whom Paul referring, is referring to in this text, those for whom he suffered, those for whom he now expresses great sorrow and continual grief in his heart, it would not be an understatement to say that those people hated him. That the Jews despised the apostle Paul and hated him for the cause of Christ. This is the context in which Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 5. The Jews mercilessly slandered Paul as an enemy. They slandered him as a traitor, mercilessly lying about him and spreading their lies. They followed him around, stirring up the people against him. They imprisoned him, beat him, Paul recounts, countless times. 40 times or or five times, 40 stripes minus one. They once left him for dead, having stoned him. They often plotted to kill him. So at the outset of this section, Paul, in that context, wants them to know that far from being their enemy, far from being a traitor to the covenant that God had made with their fathers, far from being against them, Paul loves them. And Paul would have done anything. Paul would have done anything to see them saved. So Paul begins then with a solemn oath in verse one, a solemn oath. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. With this statement, Paul pleads with them and with us to be heard. Paul is pleading for a hearing. Give me a hearing. As he pleads, he calls on the Lord Jesus Christ himself to bear witness. I tell you the truth may have been sufficient, but what he is about to say necessitates the gravity of an oath. I tell you the truth in Christ. Paul grounds the veracity of his statement. Paul grounds the sincerity of his own heart, the earnestness of his own statement. Paul grounds that in his union to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the Lord Jesus is going to be the one who holds him accountable for every one of his words, in the day of judgment, Paul says in that context, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. Having appealed to the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Paul then adds the testimony of his own conscience. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul's acknowledgement of that fact led Paul to then say, we make it our aim then to live well pleasing to him. Our aim in this life is to be, to live, to be well pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. A life well pleasing to him involves a conscience that is free of offense. Now that presupposes that your conscience is biblically informed. A biblically informed conscience is the means by which you and I, brothers and sisters, in this life, bring, to our, bring our own heart and mind, bring our own thoughts, bring our own conduct under examination. Conscience, having, been, having our conduct brought under examination, conscience then A biblically informed conscience may either approve or disapprove. Romans chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, conscience may accuse or else excuse. It may affirm your guilt or an approving conscience may absolve you of guilt. Now, again, your conscience is not the arbiter of truth. In other words, you're not a slave to your conscience. Your conscience must be biblically informed. The word of God is the arbiter of truth. Our consciences must must be bathed, as it were, in the word of God, informed by the word of God, it has to be informed. So then Paul's statement here in verse one, in addition to the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Paul also appeals then to the approval of his own conscience, a conscience that is informed by biblical truth, the conscience of one indwelt by the spirit of God, and therefore a conscience through the word of God that is governed and informed by the operations of God's spirit. This appeal to his conscience was important to the Apostle Paul. Paul was no stranger to baseless accusations from the Jews. Those who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer what? Persecution going to suffer accusations. You're going to face slander. Paul was no stranger to slander. He was no stranger to baseless accusations. He followed in the footsteps of our Lord in facing that persecution and facing that slander. And every single godly Christian man or woman who is going to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and follow in the footsteps of Paul will at some point or another deal with slanders, lies, accusations. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Under the weight of often irrational slander of his own name, his own character, much of which we looked at when we considered 2 Corinthians together. Paul, before the face of God, Coram Deo, or before the judgment seat of Christ, before the testimony of God's own spirit, Paul could always appeal to the actual acquittal of his own conscience for reassurance under severe persecution and slander. And brothers and sisters, that means something in the face of that onslaught if the face in the face of that assault if you can stand and say that my conscience before the face of god jesus christ as my witness by the strength that his spirit supplies my conscience is clear if you can say that can you see what a what a comfort that is what a reassurance that is of your standing before the one with whom you must give an account how your standing is solid. Uh, How that builds your confidence in the face of those assaults, in the face of that accusation, that slander. This was extremely important to the Apostle Paul. Brothers and sisters, it should be important to us. Look with me at Acts 23. Let's see an example of this in the experience of Paul. Living quorum deo, before the face of God, in the presence of God as it were, before the testimony of, of Jesus Christ himself, the testimony of God's own spirit, we should be a people who strive to live with a clear conscience before God, an approving conscience rather than a guilty conscience. Acts 23, 23, Paul is brought in to appear before the Sanhedrin, where Paul, once again, accused by the Jews. Go figure. Paul is accused by the Jews of being a traitor, being a traitor to the covenant, being a traitor to the temple, being a traitor to God, being a traitor to his own people. They accuse Paul of standing opposed to the law, that Paul opposed temple service, opposed the worship of God that took place in the temple. They accused Paul of bringing Gentiles past the middle wall of separation and into the holy place, defiling the temple. These are baseless accusations. On the basis of these false accusations, they had very nearly killed him, beat him before a Roman garrison stepped in to restrain the mob, And now standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts 23 verse 1, Paul says, looking earnestly at the council, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth (laughs) for saying that he had a clear conscience before God. In other words, there's no way that Paul, there's no way, Paul, that you can claim a clear conscience having violated God's law so grievously as you have as is evidenced by all these witnesses. And what does Paul say? I have a clear conscience. Though the world is arrayed against you, you can stand with it. if you can stand with a clear conscience before god it's before your master that you will stand or fall you can have confidence before god if you can have a clear conscience that what you've done is in accord with his word do you see paul has great reassurance great comfort in having a clear conscience before god and men despite the fact that all this slander is being leveled against him he wanted to strike him on the mouth verse 3 then paul said to him god will strike you you whitewashed wall for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Contrary to the law? Those who stood by said, Do you reveal God's high priest? Paul, and notice Paul's response immediately I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Maintaining that here's a A perfect example of Paul maintaining a clear conscience before God and men and immediately upon understanding what he had done, Paul repented of it. Flip the page. Look at Acts chapter 24, verse 13. Chapter 24, verse 13. In his defense now before Felix the governor, verse 13. Nor can these Jews, can they prove the things of which they now accuse me? They can't prove it, which is very often the case, brothers and sisters. This is what he did. That's what he did. Give me evidence. Give me an example. Of what he, they can't prove it. These are accusations that don't stick. These are slanderous, you see. They can't prove the things of which they now accuse me, Paul says. But this I confess to you, verse 14, that according to the way in which they call a sect the way, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men, knowing that there will be a resurrection from the dead. He strives to have a clear conscience, a good conscience, a pure conscience without offense before God and men. Paul is saying, my conscience is clear in the matter. Here's the reason we're going to be raised from the dead. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account maintain a clear conscience. It's a clear conscience in the face of slander that provides fertile soil in which the believer may count himself blessed for having been reviled for the sake of his name. Do you see? Count it all blessing. Blessed you are when they revile you, speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Paul would count himself blessed having a clear conscience before God and men. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. And he appeals to his own conscience. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Having now then really said all that he could say to attest to his own truthfulness. And in that pleading, as it were, for a hearing... Pleading for an acknowledgement of his own sincerity, Paul then lays out the depth of his love and the gravity of his concern. Second, a sorrowful wish. uh, Point two, verse two. Paul says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. The depth of Paul's sorrow, the constancy of his grief, the extent to which Paul would go in verse three to see them saved, Think with me, that communicates something of the horror that awaits the unbeliever under the judgment of God. Often, very often, unbelievers entirely ignorant of that horror, unknowing, uninformed of the horror that awaits them. As Solomon said, in much wisdom is much grief. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. Paul, with much knowledge, with much wisdom now, increases his own sorrow concerning his countrymen according to the flesh. Knowing the horrors that await them, Paul says, I have great sorrow. Paul is more concerned for their souls than they are. Do you see? Oftentimes when we preach the gospel to people, you'll break down into tears far faster than they will. (laughs) Knowing what awaits them. We have a greater concern, a greater care often for their souls than they do. It's Paul's awareness of their peril that compounds his grief. It's Paul's awareness of what awaits them that compounds his anguish of heart. Paul's words don't ring shallow. Paul's words aren't empty. It's not hyperbole. Paul, they're not exaggerated. They're not overly emotionalized. Paul is simply expressing The true anguish of his heart. Again, an anguish that a godly mother or a godly father would certainly understand. Paul is simply expressing the true anguish of his heart. Unlike many professing Christians today who consider the Jewish people, even in our own day, the Jewish people they consider to be God's people and those who will inherit the promises, Paul sees the truth here at the outset of Romans chapter 9. Paul doesn't hide or mitigate his response to their true state. He knows what awaits them, that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, they will will perish in hell under the judgment of God for their sin. That's what Paul believes. That is what is fueling Paul's anguish of heart. It's this acknowledgement, the acknowledgement of the Jewish people we're speaking about ethnic Israelites. It's Paul's acknowledgement of their condition that compels them, Paul, in love to say in verse three, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. That's the intensity of Paul's love for them. That's the intensity of a godly mother's love for her lost child the intensity of a godly father's love for his lost son. And it reflects the intensity and the clarity with which Paul acknowledges their impending judgment. Paul communicates his love for them in the absolute strongest possible terms. Can you think of anything, any any way in, you, in which you might express love for someone that goes beyond that. Paul says, I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for them, that they might be saved. The word translated accursed in verse three is the Greek word anathema. It refers to being damned. It refers to being brought under the curse. Paul says, if it were possible, that's the sense of the grammar there in verse three. If it were possible, if it were permissible. So I think um, I could wish is a good translation there. If it were possible, if it were permissible, and if it would avail for the salvation of my countrymen according to the flesh, I would be willing to be damned on their behalf. Paul says, I'd be willing to be devoted to destruction for the sake of my brethren that they might be saved. Paul could wish that he himself were consigned to hell forever, if only they could live. That's love, amen? You can't conceive of anything more loving than that. That is the greatest expression of love. Even the use of the word brethren. Remember, these are a people who despised him, hated his guts, counted him an enemy, labeled him a traitor, wanted to kill him every chance they got. And he uses the word brethren, despite their hatred of him. That word brethren communicates something of Paul's affection for them, doesn't it? Paul knows that it's not possible or permissible. But the language is indicative of Paul's heart. Who does this remind you of? Paul's love is patterned after the love of our Savior for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus Christ did this so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. Jesus Christ has done for us what Paul wished he could do for his countrymen and see them saved. Jesus Christ did for us. What is the absolute, greatest, unmatched, unparalleled act of love that anyone could do. Put it in perspective. There is no greater act of love than what Jesus Christ did for his own at the cross. So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, me and you, in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith not through any works of our own, otherwise we'd be doomed. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on our behalf so that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ did not withhold that kind of love from us. He voluntarily laid down his life. He took him upon himself the condemnation that you deserve. He took upon himself the full undiluted wrath of God that should be poured out upon you for your sin. And he took it upon himself in love. And he took it upon himself going in with eyes wide open, knowing exactly what that condemnation entailed. With knowledge, do you see? Understanding. He knew, he knew what that meant. He goes into the garden of Gethsemane and prays great Sweat drops of blood dripping from his forehead. And he prayed if there was any way that that cup could be removed from him. The Lord Jesus Christ went voluntarily to the cross, knowing knowing exactly what would be the case, knowing the full wrath of God that would be poured out upon him for those he came to redeem. And he went voluntarily and laid down his life for us. He gave himself up to divine wrath that we might live. Paul is saying in verse 3, I would give anything. That's what Paul is communicating. I would give anything if I could. Jesus Christ did give everything. Gave his own life to save us. This is the character of a Christ-like love, do you see? This is the standard. The standard with which we are called to love one another. That is the standard with which a husband is to love his wife. That is the standard with which a godly wife is to see that she submits to and respects her husband. This is the standard of love. This is the standard of our peace, the standard of our unity, the standard of our love for one another. This is the way that we ought to love one another when we interact with one another. This is the this reflects the kind of care and kind of concern that should characterize that relationship such that that relationship would reflect this kind of love and care and concern, do you see? And Paul expresses that to these who are his professed enemies. Paul expresses this kind of love. This attachment, this affection that Paul has for Israel is not due only to his ethnic ties, but it also has to do with his shared place with Israel in the history of redemption. His affection magnified by the privileged place that Israel herself has enjoyed in covenant with God. Paul makes a solemn oath. He expresses a sorrowful wish. Thirdly, he reminds them of a sacred trust. Paul refers to his countrymen according to the flesh in verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. They are Israelites. In other words, they are the physical seed of the great patriarch Abraham. They are the sons, if you will, the descendants of Isaac and Jacob. They are a unique race among all the nations of the earth. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. Listen to this from Deuteronomy. God says of Israel, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In other words, this unique relationship to God Expressed God's love for them and expressed, brought tremendous covenant blessings, tremendous covenant privileges. It was an exalted state, a unique state, uh, a precious relationship. Romans chapter three, verse one, Paul asks, what advantage then has the Jew? What profit of circumcision? If salvation, if justification is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and that for the Gentiles as well as for the Jew, then what privilege is there to being a Jew? Paul says, much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. God had given them his very word. Here in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, Paul refers then to a representative list of the many privileges they enjoyed. They are Israelites, Israelites indeed, to whom pertain the adoption. In other words, they enjoyed a filial relationship between themselves and Yahweh. The God of Israel was their father, so to speak. And God says of them, out of Egypt, I've called my son. They were the children of God, the apple of his eye. Children under a tutor, but children nonetheless. In verse 4, God's visible glory had been manifested in their midst. They beheld his glory in the plagues that were poured out over Egypt. They beheld his glory in the parting of the Red Sea. They beheld his glory in the destruction of Pharaoh and his army. They heard his audible voice at Sinai. They saw his majesty upon the top of the mountain, consumed in fire and smoke and thundering and lightning. They heard his audible voice He led them through the wilderness in a cloud by day and a fire by night, fed them with manna out of heaven. They saw the glory of God fill the tabernacle. The glory of God later filled the temple such that the priests couldn't even get in there to do their work. (laughs) The one who was enthroned between the cherubim over the mercy seat dwelt in their midst. They beheld his glory. They also beheld the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, and they rejected him. Verse 4. To them were given the covenants of the promise, the covenant made with Abraham, the covenant made with Moses, the covenant made with David. Nothing characterized the uniqueness of Israel's relationship to Yahweh more than the covenants that God entered into with them. The condescending mercy, grace of God. And all of those covenants pointing to God's greatest gift to them, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The covenant that God would make through the shed blood of his own son. They'd been given God's law so that they might know his will, that they might hide it in their heart and learn to fear him and not sin against him. To them, God had committed the service or the worship of God in the sanctuary. To worship God, you had to come through the veil of Judaism, so to speak, through the veil of the Mosaic administration to worship God at the temple. There were God-fearing Gentiles who gathered outside in the court of the Gentiles to worship God, weren't able to go in to the holy place, into the inner courts, the worship of God, that service of God's worship given particularly to Israel. And until the time of Christ, you would have had to have become a proselyte Jew in order to enjoy that covenant worship. All of those terminated, all of those promises terminated upon the greatest fulfilled promise, namely the provision of God's own son for the salvation of his people. Verse five, of whom of these countrymen, Paul's countrymen according to the flesh, of whom are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That would include all of those patriarchal descendants. And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Jesus Christ is described in two ways in verse 5. He is over all as Lord And he is eternally blessed as God. Maybe we'll take time uh, in a sermon to come where we'll unpack thoroughly that particular ascription of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Suffice it to say for now, the grammar supports that. He is over all as Lord and he himself is the eternally blessed God. The primary reason for Paul's anguish was Israel's rejection of their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. A rejection that is magnified by who he is. They weren't rejecting a mere man. They were rejecting the God-man. They weren't rejecting a mere teacher, a mere preacher. They were rejecting God's own anointed prophet, priest, and king. So when Paul expresses his heart, Romans chapter nine, verses one through five, he has that in mind. They don't realize, they don't realize the depth of their rebellion. They don't realize the depth of their sin, the magnitude, the weight of condemnation that hangs over their head. A solemn oath, a sorrowful wish, and a sacred trust. Paul writes in Sorrow, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But Paul writes in hope. And Paul's hope from the text is that he'll gain a hearing. He writes in hope that he'll gain a hearing from reasonable countrymen, from reasonable Jews. And Paul has gained a hearing everywhere Paul goes. Paul goes into the synagogue, preaches the gospel, and the Jews are being saved. Ethnic Jews, elect of God, Pouring into the kingdom through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, everywhere Paul goes, an apostle to the Gentiles, the Gentiles themselves, through faith in Jesus Christ, pouring into the kingdom. Paul writes in sorrow, but Paul writes in hope. Paul writes in sorrow and in hope, not only for his Jewish countrymen to be saved, but that you and I might come to an apprehension, a comprehension of this tremendous theology, that we might exalt in our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all that he's done for us through the gospel. Paul knows the plan of God. He knows the plan of God to exalt himself in justice, and he knows the plan of God to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. And Paul writes in hope, if you're here today and you've not turned from your sin, and you've not entrusted yourself, your whole self, heart, soul, mind, and strength, your life, if you've not entrusted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are no better off than one of these unbelieving apostate Jews who are consigned to peril. And you're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ right alongside those who crucified him. Do you see? Those who love you most will tell you the truth. Those as a testimony of their love for you who tell you the truth, those are the ones who really love you. Paul says to the Galatians, am I now your enemy because I tell you the truth? (laughs) I tell you the truth because I love you, because I care about you. And those who love you enough to come to you and to express anguish of heart at your condition before God at the state of your soul, at the condition of your heart. Those are the ones who love you. Hear them. Hear the gospel. Look at the privileges that you've been given. If you're here today, you've never turned from sin to trust in Christ. Look at the privilege that you've been given. If you've been here for any length of time, you've come here and you've heard the word of God, the very oracles of God taught to you and preached to you over and over and over and over again. Out of this pulpit, from the lectern, from the people of God, preaching the gospel to you. I know it's happened. (laughs) I know you've heard it. Think of the privileges, the privileges you've been given. Many of you, kids, listen to me. You've grown up in a household where the word of God is preached. You've grown up in a Christian home with a godly Christian mother who longs for your soul to be saved. In the home of a godly Christian father who has shed tears over you, are you going to reject the Lord Jesus Christ like those who crucified the Lord of glory? Are you going to belittle and demean the tears of your parents like the heart of Paul here and those who would call Paul their their enemy and a traitor to the faith? You're at a biblical church. Many of you have been brought up in a Christian home. Your parents, kids... Godly parents would be willing to go to hell that you might be saved. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Turn from your sin. No greater love, no greater love imaginable has been poured out than that love which has been poured out by the Lord Jesus Christ in his own shed blood at Calvary for the salvation of his people, that those who would entrust themselves to Christ would be saved. Don't respond to the gospel like those who crucify the Lord of glory. Turn to Christ in faith. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we continue day in and day out to proclaim his death until he comes. Proclaim his death as witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, as witnesses to that love for the sake of worldlings, our countrymen, so to speak, according to the flesh, that they might be saved We need to continue to be faithful with the gospel. Amen. The Lord is at work through his gospel to save a people for his name. We should preach the gospel in that hope as Paul preaches here in hope. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open the eyes of the unbeliever. That You would turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. Turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. You would redeem a people for the glory of your name. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the furtherance and expansion of your kingdom. For your everlasting praise and worship. God, we pray that you would do that work by your spirit that only you can do. You would save sinners. You would build up your saints. You would magnify your grace and mercy in our own sight. Lord, please, uh, we pray. We pray that you would give us a hearing with the Gentiles. You would give us a hearing with the gospel among those whom we long to see saved. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a hearing, that you would soften their hearts, that you would lift the veil from their eyes in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lift the veil in the preaching of the gospel that Jesus Christ might receive the full reward of his suffering. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.